Well, good evening. What a joy it is to be with each of y'all this evening. After yesterday's Frisbee tournament, there's a little bit more ooing and aahing this morning. If you want to see a grown man cry, make him play six hours of Frisbee and then try and get up the next morning. So, and I only played three hours, so some of you guys must be dying. Um, but our, well, our, in our psalm this evening, our, our text tonight, we'll be looking at Psalm 45. That'll be on page 471 if you're using your pew Bibles. And our psalm this evening is a little different from some of the psalms we've looked at thus far in our series. Um, you'll see at, our, at the, the, the title given as we read that it's given to, as a love song. It's a love song. And most scholars, most people think that this was some sort of wedding psalm given to uh, some Davidic king. We're not sure. A lot of people at one time thought it was Solomon, someone thought it was David, but now they're not really sure who, but somewhere in the line of David, the, the, the poet came along and wrote this psalm, and you'll see it's got all sorts of characters, right? It's got the bride, it's got the groom, and it's even got all their people in mind, right? All the people who would benefit from this wedding, so there's a lot going on in this, this psalm, and uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 17. So let's give our attention to God's word, starting in Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of offer. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Most holy God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for just the reminder that we are your people and that at our helm stands a great king. Father, would you send your spirit and open our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, Father, give us willing spirits to accept the things that you have for us in your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, many of y'all probably have a favorite cartoon, right? Anyone remember that one cartoon movie that just sticks out? If you think back, some of y'all longer than others, some of y'all sooner than others. Well, for me, it's the cartoon Robin Hood, right? The Disney's version of the classic tale. I believe Josh mentioned it in a sermon a few months ago. One thing that sticks out is the incredibly catchy tune, right? I feel like that song is always playing in my head, no matter where I am, what time of day it is, it'll always come out. Well, if you remember the storyline of Robin Hood, you remember that what's driving the storyline of Robin having to rob in order to give her the poor is that Richard the Lionheart has gone out to battle to the Crusades, and his brother, Prince John, has taken the throne. His brother, you remember the scene? He's all decked out in royal regale, and he's got the, the gems on all his fingers, and little John, the giant bear, comes up and kisses his rings, and he sucks out all the gems. That was always my favorite scene as a kid. But we have Prince John abusing his power and driving men into robbery and crime out of necessity. And if you remember, it's not so much the success of Robin Hood, which is really the final climax of the story. He does a lot of damage, right? He does his best to fight against Prince John. But the real turning point, the final conclusion to that problem is his brother, Richard the Lionheart, returning from battle. And when his brother comes, the true king comes and stands upon the throne, sits upon the throne. And we're reminded that only once the true king comes will there be justice in the land. And we've seen that story time and time again, haven't we? We no longer really use the titles of kings and queens, but the story is repeated throughout literature and history, isn't it? If someone given power, either legitimately or illegitimately, and then very quickly they turn and begin to abuse it. Right? My, uh, I had a college professor who used to tell me that Every story, every, story, every story can be boiled down to two plots. Either a stranger comes to town or someone goes on a journey. Right? If we think about it, it's all any story ever really is. Someone comes to town or someone goes on a journey. And yet the, the impetus, the, the driving force of someone coming to town or someone taking a journey is often someone abusing power. It's often someone who has taken something and has taken power and has ran with it, has mishandled it in some way. And the moral for most of these stories is very simple, right? It's we all want power. We all want power, and yet there's not a one of us who are very good at having it. We all want power, and yet none of us are very good at having it. And that drives this sort of mistrust of people in power as well, right? We, know, we think to ourselves, well, if anyone should be in charge, it should be me. But as soon as we are given charge, as soon as we are given authority, right, we tend to make more of a mess of things than we'd like. Well, this sort of power complex that each of us have really bleeds into our understanding of God, doesn't it? 
The picture that all of us really battle with of who God is is summed up perfectly by by C.S. Lewis in his memoir, Surprised by Joy. He says this, at the death of his mother, Lewis found himself praying for a miracle, praying that God would come and heal his mother of cancer. But he says this, I had approached God or my idea of God without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture of this miracle, to appear neither as savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I supposed he would simply, well, go away. All of us battle that picture of God, don't we? We don't want a magistrate or a monarch. We want a magician, right? Someone who will come and do what we ask him and then flutter off into whatever fairyland tale he came from. We want someone who can grant us our three wishes and then go back into the bottle without making any claim on our lives, without making any sort of moral assertion on how we are to live. Well, our psalm this evening paints a different picture of who God is. Our psalm this evening tells us of a great king. And in fact, the author of the letter to the Hebrews will take some select verses from this psalm, particularly verses 6 and 7, and use them to show why Christ is so superior. In fact, in his argument, he uses it to show why Christ is superior to angels, but really why he is superior to every other being in the universe. And the logic behind the author to the letter of Hebrews in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, is very simple. Christ is better than angels and all other powers and principalities because he's God's son. And as God's son, he is king. He's better because he's God's son, and as God's son, he's king. And this little phrase, Jesus is king, has been proclaimed by people for almost two millennia. It's been said in thousands of languages. It's been written on doorposts, on signs. It's been whispered under the muttered breaths of martyrs. Even Kanye West recently proclaimed that Jesus is king. And we see in our psalm tonight that Jesus is king for three very simple reasons. The first is that he's king because he's always been king. The second is that he's king because he's defeated his enemies. And lastly, he's king because he's been given the throne and now awaits the perfection of his bride. We could sum it up like this. Christ is king in his pre-existence. He's always been king. Christ is king in his incarnation and his mission to come and conquer sin and death. And lastly, Christ is king in his exaltation. He's been given the throne and now awaits his bride. But we'll start this evening with the one that lays the foundation for the other two, that he's always been king. He is the pre-existent king. Now, as we work through this psalm, I, I, I hope that your ears were kind of pricked to sayings, phrases that almost don't fit a merely human subject. 
one can't read some of these passages and at least get the sense that in some way the psalmist spoke of things he had no idea of, right? The poet, whoever he was, spoke far more than he knew. There's this paradox, this tension we see throughout this psalm, particularly in verses 2 and verses 6. We see there that in verse 2 that the poet says to the king, whoever he is, that he is the most handsome of the sons of men. And he's go, he goes on to, describe, to be described as one who is full of splendor, full of majesty. His cause is only truth and righteousness. Building upon this picture, one commentator says that the king, as the poet portrays him here, is no figurehead. He's no just mere king for a people but rather he is the embodiment of all that gives kingship its unique glory. So this king, whoever this king is that the poet's describing, is a king that sums up everything what it means to be a king. Right? Any possible characteristic that you can describe about a king, this guy's got it in spades. And really, as we think about it, this subject transcends every king we've seen thus far in biblical history. Right? I mean, maybe the top two contenders are David and Solomon, but those two guys messed up pretty bad along the way. And this tension really reaches a new point in verse 6, where the poet goes so far as to call the king God. He calls the king God. Look there with verse 6 with me. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now I think if, like myself, before I studied this psalm, we miss this tension because as we read that, we subconsciously think, oh, the, king, the, the poet's just switched audiences now. He's gone from talking about the king, now he's talking to God. But notice, throughout this psalm, he's either speaking to the groom or the bride. He never changes subjects. Right? There's only one person that this poet could be talking to. It's the king, supposedly a man, and yet he unapologetically calls him God. Not only that, but he has a throne that lasts forever and ever, a throne that Revelation will go on to describe as one that has been, that will be, and will continue to be. And notice, even in the next verse, in verse 7, that he distinguishes this God-king, this, this king equated with God from God himself. See there at the, in the very middle of verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So you've got this tension in this psalm of the poet calling the king God, but also differentiating between God and the king. So there's the king who is God, and then there's also the God-king's God. This differentiation going on. And the author of Hebrews takes this verse to show that Jesus, as God's Son, is himself God. Jesus is himself God. Christ has always been God, and he's always been with God. 
And really we can see the author of Hebrews taking this passage and almost imagining it as a conversation going on between father and son for all eternity. Right? It's a, it's a conversation where the father says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He says, see, Christ has always been king. The Father has always said to Jesus, to the Son, this is your throne. It's forever and ever. And it's important to note that Christ's equality with God, Christ sharing God's throne with God, the fact that he's been reigning with God for all time, is the basis for everything else that follows in the book of Hebrews. It is because Jesus has always been with God and has always been God that he is so much better than angels, that he is so much better than Moses, than Aaron, than the Levitical priesthood. And it's what makes his sacrifice so amazing is that he's always been God and he's always been king. He has reigned on the throne with the Father for eternity. He's upheld the universe since the light first broke forth. And even when he was walking the streets of Jerusalem as the incarnate Jesus Christ, he was still maintaining that order all along. Jesus has been and always will be king But with the incarnation, we come now to our second point. That is that Christ is king because he's come and conquered his enemies. Now with the author author of Hebrews giving us a sort of vantage point on how to view this psalm, we see that we can now peer into how Christ has gone and claimed his bride. We see that he has actually left his throne to ride out and defeat his enemies. We see it there in verse 3, right? Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. And jump to verse 4. In majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. See, Jesus now is the king who comes and fights on behalf of his people. He comes and he does not sit back like a king living off the fat of his land, off the servitude of his people. But he comes and invades their world, invades our world, to conquer his enemies, to conquer our enemies. He came to conquer sin and death, to proclaim liberty and freedom to the captives. Instead of a parasite living off his people, right, Christ is like a lion, roused by the cries of his pride. And now he comes to make his presence known. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. right? The first thing we see in Mark, John the Baptist saying, is repent for the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus' own first words as recorded in Mark were the same. The kingdom of God is at hand. He, Christ was coming not just as a healer, as a teacher, but he was coming bringing the kingdom of heaven with him. 
He was coming down with the sword of truth on his thigh. He was riding out victoriously and majestically coming to the defense of his people. As we think about what kind of king our Lord Jesus is, why he is king, we can say he is king not only because he's always been king, though that, that should be enough, but as the psalmist tells us that he is king because he has gone and vanquished his enemies, vanquished our enemies. And as those who were under the lordship of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right, captive to the penalty of the law, we now owe our full allegiance our full fealty to this great king, this great king who has come and set us free. The book of Revelation sums it up beautifully when it says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this king presented in Psalm 45, has conquered. He's conquered. It's finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done But there is one more thing to be done. And Revelation 5, 5 tells us this, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I'm not going to explain what what I think all that means, so we're just going to kind of jump jump over that and say that now Christ, opening the seven seals, now sits on his throne and awaits the readiment of his bride Not only so that she can come to him, but so that he can now come in his full majesty, in his full glory, and return in power. So our last point tonight is that he's king because he's been given the throne and now awaits for his bride. We see this right in in verse 6. God has given him a throne, but now he waits a bride. And look there in verse 10 with me. He says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire you, will desire your beauty. Since he is Lord, bow to him. So now the poet turns from talking about the king, who we now know is Jesus, and now turns to his people, turns to the bride. And he tells us to make ourselves ready. He tells us to begin the process because the king has come, he's conquered his enemies, and now he's sitting on the throne waiting for us to enter, waiting for us to come and be ready. And look at this. He says, he will desire our beauty. He will desire your beauty. He'll desire my beauty. The beauty of the church will be the one thing, the all-consuming passion of our King Jesus. And that's a remarkable statement. The king will desire your beauty. See, Isaiah 33:17 tells us that we will see the king in his beauty when he comes back. We're going to see Jesus fully arrayed in all the splendor all the divine wonder that he could possibly show us. And yet at the same time, we're told here in this psalm that Christ 
desires our beauty. He desires our beauty. Or as one ancient translation has it, thy beauty, wait, 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 wrong, sorry, jumped, jumped ahead, sorry. He cannot wait to see us in our beauty. So he, the most handsome of men, the most handsome of men desires us in our beauty. Now we get to what I actually just jumped to. As one ancient translation has it, thy beauty, O Messiah, is greater than that of the children of men. So this one whose beauty is greater than all the children of men desires your beauty. Desires your beauty. And we, of course, want to say with Paul that all our works are like filthy rags, that apart from Christ we are dead, that we have no beauty in and of ourselves to draw us to Christ, to draw Christ to us. But when we are brought to life by the Spirit through faith, Christ turns to us and says, that's my bride. That's my bride. Or as he says, prefigured in the Song of Solomon, you are beautiful, my love. And here's, here's the best part. You have captivated my heart. You have captivated my heart. Can you imagine the king of a great country, the greatest country the world has ever known, he can have anything his heart desires, anything he wants. He has the right to anything and everything his heart imagines. And yet he says, I want you. I want you. You're the thing I want more than anything else in this world is you. One day, you see, we'll, we'll see Christ fully displayed in his beauty, in his glory. But then he'll turn to us, his church, and say, look at my bride. Look at her. Look how beautiful she is. But that means that we now are his people. Right? Even the bride is not free from bowing down to the king. Look there in verse 11 at the very end, he says, the poet tells us, since he is your Lord, bow to him. We are loved and desired and cared for, yes, but that does not mean that we do not now bow to our king. And yet I think what keeps us from bowing, what gives us so much fear of bowing to our king is that we'll no longer be able to do all the things we used to love doing. Right? We'll have to say goodbye to our father's house. We'll have to say goodbye to our people. We'll have to say goodbye to the things that we once found joy in. And C.S. Lewis also spoke to this. There's always a C.S. Lewis quote for something. Towards the end of Surprised by Joy, as he's slowly converting, he's now converted to just general theism, believing that there's some sort of God. He hasn't quite jumped to Christianity just yet. But he said this, I had hoped that the heart of reality might be of such a kind that we can best symbolize it as a place. So some sort of home that we're all going towards. Instead, I found it to be a person. For all I knew, the total rejection 
of what I call joy might be one of the demands, might be the very first demand he, might, he would make upon me. And we all feel that, don't we, that as soon as we bow to Christ, that means everything that we call joyous is no longer ours. Christians for almost two millennia have been the social wet blankets, as it were. Right? So someone once said that um, Puritanism was the fear that someone somewhere was having a good time. And perhaps rightly we deserve such disdain, but joy is at the heart of the Christian life. Look there in verse 15, it says, With joy and gladness, Christ's people are led along as they enter the palace of the king. And yet what's really remarkable, following Lewis still, is that those things we call joys, those things we thought we wanted so badly, end up dissipating. They end up looking so insignificant once we've found our great king. Lewis, again, at the very end of Surprised by Joy, says, But what in conclusion of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has been mainly about, to tell you the truth. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. See, you begin to find with Christ as your king that all those joys were Simple pleasures you could do without. In fact, as he'll say it, they were signs pointing to someone greater. And once you've got your sights on the greater, you have no more need for those simple joys. There are a lot of things that promise joy in this life, aren't there? A claim of people, money, Sex, power, we could go on and on and on about all the things that promise us joy. And yet Christ gives us true joy. Gives us joy that never dies, never wishes for one more night, one more penny, one more friend, but joy that meets us and sustains us. Christ is the king in his beauty. He is the one who is fairer than 10,000. He is the one whose face shines like the sun. And that sun draws sinners to light and to life. He rides out and defends his people. He rides out in the cause of truth. And he's the king who looks to you, looks to me, and says, Mine. Where else will you find a king like that? Let's pray. Our great and holy king, what words could we offer to describe our eternal thanks to you for rescuing us, for being our God, for being our king, for giving us life? Father, would you teach us the great joys of bowing to you, of finding at our heart and at our center, that you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, are all that we could possibly desire. We ask this in your mighty and matchless name. Amen.